Will you pray with me? God, may these words that I speak and the meditations of all our hearts in this time be pleasing in your sight, for you are our rock in hard times and in the life of Jesus, our Redeemer. Amen. Perhaps you have seen by now the recent New York Times article on six-word pandemic memoirs. There are a lot of good ones, but some of my favorites include Moved Back to California. Yay! Oops. Tired of hearing Mark, you're muted. Apparently, Rock Bottom has a basement. My dad's last breath on FaceTime. Baking bread didn't cure my loneliness. Graduated college in my living room. Gorging content doesn't fill the soul. These memoirs reminded me of another social media event from a few years ago after a series of Supreme Court verdicts came down that liberals really didn't like. At that time, the social media platform Twitter erupted with a conversation that was labeled hashtag things Jesus never said. The discussion was then quickly picked up by a Christian devotional magazine, and I have truly never seen such an entertaining and thought-provoking conversation occur on social media. Some of the hashtags were just funny. You only live once, hashtag things Jesus never said. My battery is dead, hashtag things Jesus never said. Who wants to play hide and seek for the next three days? Hashtag things Jesus never said. Then there was the disgruntled pastor contingent of this debate. Good idea. Why don't we have a meeting about it? Hashtag things Jesus never said. Or love the Lord with all your heart and mind and strength. Unless you have something better to do. Hashtag things Jesus never said. And Sabbath is for soccer. Or let's monetize the church and call it missions. One of my personal favorites, we've never done it that way before. Hashtag things Jesus never said. Or you will know that I am with you by your pastor's funny and catchy sermons. Things Jesus never said. Or that's my pew or follow me and everything will fall into place. Now after that, what became clear in these conversations was how deeply our national and political divide has entwined itself with our theology. Those who identified as liberal tended to post sharp, incisive, issue-driven attacks, things like, do you have Blue Cross or Cigna? Things Jesus never said, or focus on the family, Things Jesus never said. If you want some bread and fish, you'll have to pee in this cup first. Or love your neighbor unless things Jesus never said. By turn the other cheek, I meant invest in the army and guns. Things Jesus never said. Now, I have to say the number of tweets at the time about the Kentucky clerk who refused to issue a marriage license to gay couples was horrifying. 
there were an awful lot of stones being cast. Conservatives appeared to be most concerned with the intersection of theology and culture, discussing concepts more than particular issues, saying things like, by all means, do what feels good, things Jesus never said, or I didn't mean to offend you, things Jesus never said, or Caesar is Lord, things Jesus never said, or I offer you one way among many, or broad is the gate and easy is the way that leads to life and many are those who find it. Of course, there were particular issue-driven exceptions. Things like, I'll let them plan parenthood, things Jesus never said, or blessed are the poor for they can be helped with a tax increase, things Jesus never said. Or when I said give to the poor, I meant to the government. Or if someone makes sin their identity, tell them to be proud of it and throw them a parade. Things Jesus never said. Both sides, however, exposed their big biblical ignorance or perhaps just their own ideological indolence. For example, one woman wrote, hashtag things Jesus never said, cater and mingle with sinners to prove that you love me. She, she, really, she really wrote that. Now, Jesus obviously might not have said the words cater or prove, but he certainly said eat with and serve. Or there was one man who wrote, we can't feed all these people. It might create dependency, things Jesus never said. Now, the truth is, while he might not have said dependency, there is at least one account where Jesus refuses those who want him to provide them for food the next day, saying that in some sense they are focused on their bodies over their souls. There were cases where the same passage of scripture was seen very differently depending on the ideological lens that people brought to it. For example, has no one condemned you? Well, I do, things Jesus never said, or... Has no one condemned you? Well, neither do I, so go out into the world and do whatever feels good. Now, I understand that Twitter is the theological equivalent of an elevator pitch. You have 30 seconds or less to get your point across. It is not the place for deep debate. But what is clear from these is how quick we are to project our disdain onto scriptural texts. And yet healthy civic life depends upon people of strong moral courage acting upon their values. Is that ever more clear than it is today? And if these past six months have shown us anything, it is that we are not all that good at this. We don't know how to talk about our faith, about our values, or how to find common ground. Now, this fall, we are going to be starting a sermon series about how to find community in a world of polarity. How can our faith inform our civic life in ways that are constructive rather than destructive, that builds community rather than tears it apart? How do we have these hard conversations without devolving into the who is the greatest debates just like those first disciples? If there is one thing, friends, for us to take from Justice Ginsburg's life, it is this. 
A true example of the last being first, she was asked by law school professors, without irony, why she had taken a man's place at the school. And yet she showed up and she tirelessly advocated for those who were forgotten by, or worse, oppressed by, system and silence. Now, I chose not to completely rewrite today's sermon because Justice Ginsburg, I believe, was the living embodiment of this scripture. She did not strive for greatness. Watch a single interview with her, any of them, and that becomes very clear. But it found her in her gentle insistence on working for those condemned by the system. She lived her life as a witness for what she believed and still managed to have close friends from across the ideological aisle. So if you want to honor her legacy or even explore it, I would encourage you to sign up for one of our small group discussions on the topic to work on figuring out how we do just that. But this week... This week, it seems to me that this lesson from the Gospel of Mark exemplifies our Twitter debates and our cultural energies in this moment. Oh, how we want Jesus to look like us, to believe like us, to confirm our ways of being right. We want, just like those earliest disciples, for Jesus to be on our side and not the other way around. But if we are being honest and thorough in looking at the texts, what Jesus usually did, what Jesus usually still does, is turn our own assumptions on their head. I remember one of the hashtags, things Jesus never said so clearly, and it has stuck with me now for several years. What did Jesus never say? Can you tell that kid to be quiet? I'm trying to preach here. It might seem like an odd thing to focus on here in an empty sanctuary, but it brings me to the point that we are still debating greatness. It might not look like who is the best disciple, but it does look like who matters. Whose voice do we listen to? Whose story gets to be told? Whose narratives are we predisposed to believe? Not in an abstract way, in a very real way. In your life, Whose story matters? Whose voice matters? Is it your boss or the folks right there on Buell Street? Is it the neighbor you know or the protester you've never met? Even here, who matters in our worship, in our life together? Me or the person who's been struggling for weeks to figure out how to join worship without unlimited data or before COVID without being able to stream online? Who matters? I once had a performer ask me how I dealt with the noise of children in worship. And I would like to be able to say that I responded more quickly than I did. But the question threw me for a moment, and I had to pause before saying something along the lines of, I try and let the parents know that it's okay. I try not to let it bother me. I try to incorporate it into whatever I'm saying. But what I wish I had said in that moment is this. One child crying, one child crying anywhere has more to say about our hunger and our need for each other and God than I do, always. What I wish I had said was that perhaps it is the very things that annoy us the most, 
For some, it's silence in worship. For others, it's the endless talking. For some, it's a musical style, the hymns or corporate prayers. Perhaps the things that annoy us the most are precisely where God is calling us to pay attention. And that's true not just in worship, but also in life. But now, now, this day, one of the things that I think we are all learning is that we would love to have crying, yelling children distracting us in worship. Wouldn't it be great to have our biggest concern be whether or not we liked the hymn, whether that corporate prayer spoke to us or not? Doesn't it all seem a bit superficial right now? I know it does to me. The presence of children in worship, whether that is physically in a building like this or virtually with the blessing of the backpacks, reminds us, first and foremost, that none of this is about us. It's about God, and it's about the people. Now, I'm not saying the form of worship is not important. Trust me, I am here videoing a sermon. Form gives shapes to our thoughts, our dreams, our aspirations. Form is what directs us to God. But when we prize form over people in anything, we are immediately in trouble. And I am here in this empty sanctuary. I am filming from this perspective to remind us that these past six months have made it very, very clear that our worship, our faith, is about God in, amongst, and through the people, not in the form our worship takes. What I have experienced from you in this time is an incredible willingness to let go of the things that normally grate on you, the things in worship that usually annoy you, like the talking during the prelude or the type of music or the discomfort with offering or confession, you know, whatever it is for you, we all have something. It is, in fact, corporate worship. There's always a piece. But what you have done and what I have seen from you is you have let those things fall away in order to protect the least amongst us, those who are vulnerable to the virus, those who are vulnerable to economic pain. Friends, you have been living this scripture in ways that are truly remarkable. And I know it feels like we have already run an ultra-long marathon and are being asked to take on another without so much as a breath. I know that we are tired. How could we not be? But over the last six months, what I have seen from you all is nothing short of remarkable. You have, just as the scripture suggests, turned your lives upside down. Make hundreds upon hundreds of masks for the community, for our neighbors in need. You respond, isn't that what sewing machines are for? YouTube worship? Sure. Zoom annual meeting? Sure, why not? Podcasts? That sounds like fun. Use Facebook to pray? Who knew? Call almost everyone on the members and friends list? Sure. Do it again? Okay. Record your most personal prayers and send them in? Okay. Show up to the garden for the food shelf? Of course. Sing your part alone into a screen for it to be compiled into an anthem? Why not? 
face the realities of systemic racism, vigils and study groups and book groups. Let's do this and let's do it well. You have turned your living rooms into recording studios and into sanctuaries. You have turned over your stimulus checks to help one another in need. You have paid each other's rent and each other's phone bills. You have mourned virtually and you have celebrated virtually. You have painted your sidewalks with encouraging messages and your eyes with hope, even when it seemed too hard. Card showers and backpack blessings and prayers on the porch. This sanctuary is not empty. It can be tempting to listen to the news and think that all is lost, that all is chaos, but it simply isn't true. We have done incredibly hard things together. This sanctuary for me is a sign of hope about what we can do, that we are together even in our distance and all in the name of the least of these. You, right now, are proof of this scripture that God's love is for the lost, the last, and the least, and that it is abundant, especially now. Think about the outpouring that you have seen for Justice Ginsburg. The last shall be first and the servant of all. Sometimes I think about how listening to Jesus must have felt in real time. Sure, there were times when he taught in the local synagogues, but more often than not, he was outside amongst the people. There were no choirs, no microphones, no sound systems. Just one man speaking above the noise of the outside, the crowd, the children playing, the people conversing. In one sense then, we are as far from those original moments as we have ever been, alone within our pods. But in another sense, it was never about finding calm and sanctity and the perfect conditions to meet God. But it was about finding God where the chaos was the loudest in the midst of everything and always in the name of the last. And in this respect... It's hard to deny, it is hard to deny that we are closer now than ever before. Do not give up the hope. Thanks be to God.